Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire and a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. This is KCBS In-Depth. The recall election is over, and Chase Boudin has been roundly defeated, meaning that his term as San Francisco district attorney will soon come to an end. But is the same true for the reform movement that he's helped lead? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. Boudin came into office at the beginning of 2020 amid a wave of progressive prosecutors, all running on promises of major reform. But over the past two years, as anger about San Francisco's crime problem has grown, many residents have soured on his leadership, and the anti-Boudin backlash culminated this past week in a successful recall vote. Of course, though, Boudin is just one leader in the much larger movement for criminal justice reform. So today in the program, we're going to consider where that movement as a whole could be headed next. We'll be hearing from three guests today on both sides of the recall question, and we'll be inviting them on one at a time. So first up, to get the conversation started, welcoming on now UC Hastings law professor Hadar Aviram, who studies criminal justice and civil rights. Hadar, welcome to the program. Thank you. So over the past week, uh, we have definitely been hearing a lot of hot takes that uh, this loss for Boudin is a sign that there's a growing backlash against criminal justice reform as a whole, uh, that perhaps this uh, spells a major setback or, or maybe even the end for the reform movement that uh, I think really has been picking up steam over the past few years. Um, Professor Avaram, uh, curious for uh, your hot take, I guess. Uh, I, I know that on Tuesday you were actually an inspector at a polling station in Bayview Hunters Point. So 
you saw this vote unfold firsthand. What do you think it says about this moment in criminal justice reform? So, so having the front row seat to this as a poll worker on, on Tuesday, I got to say that my hot take is perhaps not so hot. And what I think mm. we're seeing here is not some kind of resounding referendum for or against progressive prosecution, but rather the result of a San Francisco specific situation of people who are tired and exhausted and are being asked to vote in the third election this year with still some residual energy from the recall of the school board from just a couple of months ago. Yeah. Just to kind of give you a little nugget of what this was like on my end, um, uh, a whooping grand total of people in my precinct uh, uh, that voted was 17 people with 18 mm. ballots coming in via mail. That's 36 people, 30, something like that, out yeah. of 650. Yeah. So this is 5% of the voters. And from what I understand, the voting turnout all around the city was pretty much the same. So I think what we're seeing here is more the way that these repeated local elections that have this incredibly low turnout are very subjected, very subjective and very subject to these twists from basically both sides of, of any issue where there's strong money, strong interest, small groups of people that are very invested in thinking about something where most people don't even bother showing up, even if they do care about crime and criminal justice and their quality of life. And, and sticking with you, Professor Avi Ram, for one second, uh, we're, we'll expand on this more later in the conversation, but just to get our listeners situated on where you're coming from, do you view this loss uh, for Chesa Boudin as a setback to the reform movement overall? Very far from it. Uh, keep in mind that just a couple of years ago, people thought that this was the way to go. And in fact, many people still believe that the elimination of cash bail, for example, is a good step in the right direction and that it's not fair to keep people in jail pretrial when the only reason they're there is that they don't have money to buy their way, way out of that. That is something that still makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. I think that there are a lot of San Franciscans that are sort of stuck in between two very tone-deaf positions that are being made in the media. One of them is this idea that crime has reached unbearable proportions. This, by the way, is not factually true, is not borne by the numbers in San Francisco. And more importantly, that the only answer to this is to incarcerate, to treat juveniles as adults, and to do all the things that we've done for many decades and we know do not work. And on the other hand, people also don't find themselves with this ultra-progressive narrative that's very divorced from reality saying, la la la, there's no problem here, everything is fine, the streets are fine. People are not experiencing the streets are fine because they're walking around and they're seeing immense suffering and substance abuse and mental health episodes in the street. And I think that this election provided a lot of this anger and frustration and anguish a convenient pinata to, 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 you know, to swing at. And, and that's basically what we saw. Yeah, so certainly a complicated picture that is emerging here. Uh, Want to welcome on now our next guest. That would be Nima Rahimi. He is a prominent supporter of the recall effort, also an executive board member of the California Democratic Party, and an attorney who has spent time working for the former San Francisco DA, George Gascon. So he's drawing both on the political perspective and the law and order perspective in this conversation. Uh, welcome to the program, Nima Rahimi. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for having me. So to help our listeners understand where you're coming from, probably good to first point out that you are a supporter of criminal justice reform in general. In fact, uh, you support many of the measures that Boudin himself has championed. Uh, we mentioned bail reform a little bit earlier, but we could also talk about efforts to reduce the jail population or his prosecution of police officers for alleged misconduct. Uh, uh, you've made it clear that you support those reform goals, broadly speaking, and yet, uh, you've become a vocal 
critic of his and a vocal spokesperson for the recall. So help us square that circle. You like reform. You don't like Boudin. What about his leadership or about how he's pursued those reform efforts? What is it that you object to? Well, um, I'll start by agreeing with Professor Aviram. I do think this is a very local local issue. I would not draw a conclusion from the San Francisco recall to the national movement. I mean, you can look across the bay in uh, Contra Costa and you have um, Diane Becton, um, who is Diana Becton, who just got resoundingly reelected as a progressive district attorney. Um, I think this was a very focused issue. I think it was very centric to um, District Attorney Boudin's approach. Um, I don't think uh, District Attorney George Gascon uh, would have been uh, recalled uh, during his tenure with the work that he was doing in San Francisco when I was working there. I can't speak to Los Angeles because I have not honestly paid any attention to what's been going down in L.A. Hmm. Uh, but for me, I, I drew a distinction between um, policy in theory and policy in implementation. I think uh, Boudin took a rigid, inflexible approach to reform. Um, I think voters felt that he was telling them that the ends justified the means. Um, his leadership resulted in releasing repeat offenders um, without taking uh, concern for the serious risks they posed to the public, and they went on to kill innocent people. Um, he was proudly not letting dealer. He wasn't holding dealers accountable for selling fentanyl with impunity, and um, we've had over 1,300 deaths over the last couple years. Um, and. Uh, you know, I, I firmly believe we're more than capable of delivering criminal justice reform that rejects centuries of systemic racism. But I also think we can be responsible stewards of our community. Um, and I think there are examples of that that you can point to. Diana Beckman's a good one. And I would argue that George Gascon during his tenure in San Francisco demonstrated that you can um, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah. Well, and also briefly, you wrote in a recent op-ed piece that, in your view, uh, Boudin's leadership represented uh, a setback for the criminal justice reform movement uh, because you suggested it, it gives the movement a bad name. Yeah, I do. I think I think you can point to very specific decisions that he made that will be drawn upon to hurt the national movement. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to welcome on our third and final guest right now. That would be Christine Soto DeBerry. She is the executive director of the Prosecutors Alliance of California. It's a group advocating for progressive reforms throughout the state. Uh, she's also formally served as Chesa Boudin's chief of staff in the San Francisco DA's office. Christine Soto DeBerry, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So as we were hearing uh, there a second ago in uh, Nima's answer, there were a lot of other elections that took place on Tuesday night, and in many of them, progressive reformers did quite well. I mean, we could uh, also point to the state level in the attorney general's race where Rob Bonta came out uh, far in the lead. So uh, what, in your view, did Tuesday night tell us about this movement of progressive prosecutors? I think what Tuesday taught us is that progressive prosecution and criminal justice reform are subject to the same winds of electoral politics that every other kind of elected office is. A lot of money matters. It works to spend a lot of money on an election for an issue or a candidate. And here we saw over $7 million spent on the pro-recall side, more than has, was spent on the previous mayor's election, a substantial amount of money. But I'm more than quadruple what's ever been spent on a DA's race. So a significant infusion of dollars that allowed the recall campaign to spread a message that 
all of the angst and anxiety that people have been experiencing for the past several years and the very hard time we've all been through and continue to grapple with was the responsibility of one person. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm uh, going to reintroduce everybody real quick. Uh, for anybody who's just joining us, this is KCBS In Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconia. Today on the program... What's next for the criminal justice reform movement after Chase Boudin's resounding loss in his recall election? We're getting the takes from uh, Hedar Aviram. She is a law professor with UC Hastings. Also, Nima Rahimi, a prominent recall supporter and an executive board member of the California Democratic Party. And we just heard a second ago from Christine DeBerry, the executive director of the Prosecutors Alliance of California. And I suppose... Really, the overarching question here that is most interesting to me is the question of, is there an inherent contradiction between these two causes that people care a lot about? Between, on the one hand, criminal justice reform and doing away with the many injustices that I think have been brought into light uh, over the past many years, and the desire that people have to live in a safe city. Can we pursue both of these goals at the same time, or... Do criminal justice uh, reform measures inherently uh, force us to accept some level of uh, greater crime? I'll put that question first to Hadar Aviram. Uh, what's your take there? I think this is pretty complicated. I think there are a lot of situations where there are trade-offs between public safety and civil rights, but I think that the trade-offs are not complete. And there are ways to make the streets more safe and pleasant and more free of suffering that don't involve the big criminal justice machine. The best example is actually happening just next door to my office. Um, the Tenderloin, as many of our listeners probably know, the Tenderloin in San Francisco is where a third of all the crime in the city happens. And uh, during the early months of the pandemic, it was very, very difficult to walk. There was an open air drug market with an enormous amount of violence. My students were afraid to come out of the dorms. And, uh, and then uh, the school and the city uh, did something really interesting. Rather than leaning on a lot of effort from SFPD, which initially was done with these very inhuman street sweepings that were going on, they contracted with a nonprofit called Urban Alchemy. Now, Urban Alchemy has swept the streets and their practitioners are resolving conflicts in the streets and helping people that are having mental health episodes and overdose episodes and things like that in a peaceful, non-confrontational, non-aggressive way. And the magic of Urban Alchemy is that their practitioners are formerly incarcerated people. So rather than treating the former incarceration as a, as a barrier to employment, you're actually thinking, oh my gosh, these people were on these really harsh prison yards and they acquired amazing people skills that make them uniquely capable of unpacking and resolving these conflicts in one of the worst areas in the city. And they are really doing marvels. It's, it's, it's hard to explain, but the feeling of walking down the street, the, 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 the added safety of somebody who can subtly you know, make a threat go away and sort of disarm a threat without being aggressive, without whipping out a taser or a gun is really palpable. Uh, everybody who lives or works in the, in the Tenderloin now feels better. And I think this is a classic example of, of public safety and civil rights and helping people walking hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, certainly an example where you can achieve uh, both goals at the same time. Uh, Similar question to uh, Christine Soda DeBerry, again, the executive director of the Prosecutors Alliance of California. We were hearing earlier from Nima Rahimi suggesting that the 
prosecutorial approach of Chesa Boudin's office was more lenient on certain types of crimes in certain specific cases, and that this was allowing potentially dangerous people to roam free. And I think that there were a few specific cases that a lot of folks pointed to over the course of the campaign as examples of this. So a two-part question, I suppose. First, do you think that that's a fair characterization, that there was a more lenient approach to certain forms of prosecution, a greater reluctance to lock people up in certain cases? First question. And then second question, if that was going on, is that a necessary part of criminal justice reform? I mean, uh, do we just are we in a place where our laws are simply too punitive and there are many examples where we do need to lessen the penalties, lessen our the, the speed with which we're willing to lock people up? Yeah, great, great questions, Keith. I think um, the point here is that the, the approach we've had for the last four decades has not really generated the kinds of safety results we would expect. Right? We've been told that the response of jails and prisons is the thing that most keeps people safe. And the truth is that's really much more of a pause button in moments when we're unsure what else to do, but it's very rarely a complete solution to the problem. And the people that are engaged in reform, George Gaskell, Chase Boudin, Dinah Beckton are saying, we can do better than failing almost 70% of the time. One would hope, right? And the, the journey that they are on is searching out the solutions like Professor just mentioned around finding better responses. No part of reform is saying, turn a blind eye, right? Violence is always wrong. It is never an acceptable response. It has to be intervened upon. The question is, what does that intervention look like that produces the greatest, most sustainable safety? And that is the journey that we are on in the reform movement is to try and understand how do we better solve these problems? Warehousing people is not an elegant solution. It's what we have evolved to from the 1600s, but I'd like to believe we're a profession like the medical profession or any other that endeavors to evolve and grow in its responses to the work it does. And that is incumbent upon leaders in this movement to be honest with the community, to say what we have been doing for four decades hasn't panned out the way we hoped. We did it earnestly. We did it with your best intentions in mind. We now have overwhelming data that it is not going to be the enduring solution we hoped it would be. Therefore, I, as a public safety official, am going to work with you and other leaders in this space to find better solutions. To, we have to do a bit of testing. We have to take a bit of risk to get to a better place. We hope we do that wisely and safely, referencing cases that have come up. Of course, we want to avoid tragedies uh, at every turn. And, and many times we're able to do that. And sometimes, frankly, we're not, no matter what approach we take. We're dealing with human beings with free will that can make good or bad decisions independent of our wishes for them and our community. And we have to do our best to respond to those, to make as safe a decisions as we can, but it is not always within our control. We can point to just as many examples of people that served their entire sentence in a jail or a state prison and came out and caused remarkable harm. It happens everywhere. Well, I think that that raises uh, one of the central debates that we saw unfold over the course of this recall election. And I'm going to put that to Nima Rahimi now. You know, this question of you can always point to an example where something bad has happened. And when you have a progressive prosecutor, it's 
easy to say, well, that's obviously the result of XYZ policy. And it's then easy to extrapolate, well, you know, if crime's going up, it's probably the result of that policy as well. But, you know, in practice, there's a lot of complicated factors that are driving crime in San Francisco and other cities. And it's hard to say exactly what policy is leading it. So what do you have to say to this notion that perhaps the individual case decisions that Chase Boudin was making we're not driving the sorts of uh, increases in crime. And we should mention it wasn't across the board increases, but um, mostly in, in certain times, specifically homicides, um, wasn't necessarily driving those increases in a way that people might expect. That's a good question, Keith. And, and let me just start by what Christine said earlier about looking at the last 40 years of our approach to crime and how it did not work. I think it's important when we talk about criminal justice reform to differentiate between what the federal government was doing for the last 40 years, what other states like Texas that have taken harsh on crime approaches have been doing for the last 30, 40 years, versus in this instance, what San Francisco has been doing since the last 40 years. I think our most progressive policies started to get implemented in San Francisco in the 70s. And we've had progressive process prosecutor after progressive prosecutor for the last 30, de- 30 years. And so when we look at San Francisco and want to extrapolate between the movement nationally, I don't think that's a fair comparison. So I wanted to put that there um, for, for viewers to understand, and at least appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to um, uh, Boudin's specific decisions, um, I'll go back to George Gascon's uh, San Francisco tenure. Um, when it came to fentanyl dealing, when it came to drug dealing, um, George Gascon prosecuted, I believe, 90 felony uh, fentanyl dealing cases in 2018 alone. And uh, Boudin had, I think, three at most or zero, according to the standards latest reporting. And that's a very clear demonstration of a difference in approach between two progressive prosecutors. And when you look at um, the success that a country like Portugal has taken by taking a progressive approach to criminal justice when it comes to drugs, they decriminalize the possession of drugs for personal use. They get the folks that are addicted help and treatment. They don't criminalize addiction, which we should not do either, but they do hold dealers accountable. And George Gascon did hold dealers accountable. Chase Boudin made a very specific decision not to hold dealers accountable. And we saw over 1,300 deaths in our community of folks that did not need to die because of a specific policy decision that Chase made. So that's a very clear cut example. I could go through the Troy McAllister case. Again, George Gascon was pursuing Troy McAllister for 25 years to life after a robbery. Uh, and Chase Boudin, in one of his first acts, released Troy McAllister for five years of time served. Six or five or six times after that, in the next nine months, Troy McAllister was picked up, arrested, and Chase Boudin decided not to file any new charges. He deferred to parole, even though he knew the state parole system had said that they were not going to do anything about certain levels of crime unless they were extremely serious because of the state of what the what the pandemic was doing. And so he knew who Troy McAllister was because he made a decision uh, when he came into office to let him go after time served. He had Troy McAllister come across his desk multiple times, time after time, and did nothing. And then two uh, innocent people in our community members in our 
community died. This was a decision approach based off philosophy of reducing jails. And he took a very rigid approach and he did not need to take a rigid approach. He could have taken a nuanced approach and centered his decision making on the victims, on public safety, as opposed to the defendant. And so um, I don't want to waste a lot of time by going through multiple examples. I've got several more, but I want to really draw a contrast between a progressive prosecutor that we had for eight years uh, in George Gascon in San Francisco versus decisions that Boudin made after the fact, and one was recalled and the other wasn't. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast we really need new phones t-mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iphone 15s and each line is only 25 dollars a month new iphone 15s it's better over here. only at t-mobile get four iphone 15s on us and four lines for 25 bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Remind our listeners that this is KCBS In Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and we are talking about the Boudin backlash and where this leaves the criminal justice reform movement going forward. We've been hearing so far from Hedar Aviram, a law professor with UC Hastings. Just heard a second ago from Nima Rahimi, a prominent recall supporter and executive board member of the California Democratic Party. And also hearing from Christine Soto DeBerry, the executive director of the Prosecutors Alliance of California. And I guess there was a lot there in that answer. Maybe to narrow it down a little bit, uh, Christine and talk about drug policy specifically. So Nima was suggesting that we don't want to 
prosecute drug possession. The war on drugs is a failure, but there is a role for the prosecution of dealers. And that translates directly, prosecuting dealers translates directly into preventing some of the ill effects of drugs, you know, drug use on the street, overdoses. What role do you see that kind of prosecution playing in solving uh, the, the drug crisis and the overdose crisis? Well, the good news is we've tried that and we know it doesn't work, right? That's what we have. The war on drugs is not a new concept. And we spent decades heavily prosecuting both users and uh, dealers of drugs. It did not reduce drug use, drug sales. In fact, on almost every metric you can look at, the potency of the drugs, the availability of the drugs, the cheapness of the drugs, on all of those metrics that we would hope would improve as we use an enforcement model against it, it got easier, cheaper, and, and stronger drugs in our communities. And so we, I know that we're all desperate to find resolution to that, that it is so painful to watch somebody's life, the, the, just the visible suffering that we see in those moments. But we know that an enforcement-only approach does not work. It just, it does not work. It would, be, it would be an easy package if that were the truth. But let's be honest. DA Gascon, DA Harris, all the DAs before them have all used this enforcement model. It did not eliminate drug sales, drug use, and the tenderloin. It, it never has. And so we have to be talking about different resolution of those cases. At most, you're going to get some amount of jail time. Maybe you're going to get prison time, but in the single digits. And what we know about the drug trade is that there is a line of people waiting to fill in those spots to distribute drugs in the tenderloin. It is, an, it is an unending stream of people. Similar to what we see around retail theft, there are lots of people looking to make money in these ways and you cannot stymie that that way. What Portugal has done, they do focus on dealers, but they focus on the import, the high level people that are bringing that market to their country. It is a little bit different than saying, focusing on a street corner and a young person that is there uh, distributing drugs for a much larger system. So there, there's a lot in that. I can appreciate very deeply the frustration and the exhaustion. We've all felt it. This, like my heart has broken the number of times I have seen people in the place that I thought no one would want that for their family member, for themselves. Uh, and, and it's incumbent on us to find better solutions. But telling ourselves that jail is going to solve the drug sale and use issue in our country it's just, it's a, it's a futile endeavor. We have to look for different interventions. Fentanyl is a very real problem. Addiction is a very real problem. Mental health challenges are very real in this country, across the country, not just San Francisco. And they require our best thinking, not things we know have already failed. Yeah. Well, just, just briefly, just to press you on that. Um, if you're taking accountability off the table, like severe forms of accountability, that seems to increase the incentive for that kind of drug dealing. So, I mean, if if there were higher penalties, could that shorten that line of dealers willing to go into the Tenderloin, into downtown San Francisco? Penalties are not the thing that are shown to reduce crime. The things that are likely to reduce crime is the belief that you'll be caught. So if we want to really, if we want to use an enforcement model, if we're saying public health approaches to this problem are not where we want to invest, I'm not sure I agree with that, but let's just pursue the logic that we're going to take an enforcement model. Then what we know, the thing that works best in enforcement is the certainty that you're going to get caught and that there's some immediate action from it. What that means is a police response, 
right? That there is somebody saying at the moment you're attempting to make that drug sale or purchase, hey, that's not allowed here, you have to stop. And that there's either an arrest or something else that comes after that. That has not been happening in San Francisco. The San Francisco Police Department makes two drug arrests a day. So we can point to many parts of the enforcement model where it has broken down, but we know scientifically that increased punishments are not what deter people from engaging in crime. Hmm. All right. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left in the program, and I want to give everybody a closing thought. So starting with uh, Hadar Aviram with UC Hastings Law, I, I guess going forward, we've talked a lot about what this election says about the criminal justice reform movement as it stands right now. What lessons do you think should be taken away from this by the next progressive prosecutor to come to San Francisco or another city? Is there are perhaps some warnings there for the next person to try this out. I suspect that a lot of what needs to happen with whoever holds that kind of office is more effort to go into diplomacy and into uh, community building. I think there wasn't enough of that. And I think that many things that were very logical and that I fully supported out of somebody that I actually like and respect a great deal uh, came from an office where uh, a lot of the sort of conventional niceties of getting along with everybody in the city, knowing how to offer an apology, knowing how to sort of reach out to people that you disagree with, I think that that PR piece wasn't there. And I think this has to be important to anybody, no matter what political stripes they were. I think that's one lesson. But the other lesson is for the voters. I think we all need to wake up to the fact that uh, direct democracy can sometimes be a little bit too direct and that uh, we are posing really, really complicated, difficult questions, dumbing them down to questions of yes and no, letting money interests on all sides of any issue throw election either way with a really small voter turnout. And so, and so my, my hope for everybody is on one hand, a little bit of humility. Let's remember that crime is like the weather. There are a lot of things that bring crime rates up and down that have nothing to do with who is in charge or what policy is there. Uh, such as, for example, a global pandemic going on that throws off, you know, any sort of legitimate and illegitimate behavior. But on the empowerment side, please don't get tired before the midterms. I know that we've already been through this three times. We need just one more in November. Hang in there and go to the polls. Well, I think uh, there's probably a lot of agreement on this panel on that point. Uh, I'll give a closing thought for Nima Rahimi as well. Uh, where would you like to see the progressive criminal justice reform movement go next? And uh, I guess similar question, what lessons do you think should be drawn? I agree with a lot of what Professor Everham said here. Um, I will say that we, when all ballots are counted in San Francisco for this election, I think it will be around 46 percent, which is pretty high for a primary election. Um, I'll also say that San Francisco voters are very smart, despite the amount of money that's been spent in past elections really outweighing one side or the other. San Francisco voters are very smart and they parse through the issues and they make good decisions. Um, I think lessons that uh, reformists should take from this uh, election is to uh, focus on delivering result results and then bring the voters along with you. Work with your counterparts, work with the different areas of government, work with the Board of Supervisors, work with the mayor's office, work with the police department, uh, work with your state legislators, um, and uh, really be a champion for reform and show the voters through action and through empathy and through data that the progress that's being made uh, is real and the results are real. Uh, and I think um, we have uh, also talked to Diana Becton. She's done a great job. She just got reelected. 
um, and I'm sure she'll have good advice. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, I think we need to des deliver results and we need to show the public that uh, we can actually solve some of these problems as opposed to letting them fester uh, for as long as they have. And closing thought to Christine Soto de Berry, I mean, a loss for Chase Boudin, but uh, overall, are you hopeful about where the progressive reform movement could go next? Yes, absolutely. I think we saw mostly great results in the state of California, and we're seeing a maturation in the reform conversation. We had in the state reformers running against reformers in some counties. That's a really exciting development for what was five years ago, a very new idea in the conversation that a prosecutor could be part of improving and rectifying the harms of the criminal justice system. D.A. Gascon was really the first. I joined his administration in 2011, and there really was not this conversation happening the way it is now. And so I hold a lot of optimism for where we're headed. The good news is that San Francisco voters and California voters understand that we need better solutions to the problems. They continue to vote for those solutions. I expect they will continue to support the people and propositions that come before them in that regard. Uh, and, and that we will continue to have a dialogue and the reformers will have the work in front of them of dispelling this myth that they don't care about safety. I can't tell you how deeply everybody I work with cares about the safety of the community they work in. They care profoundly. It's the only reason they do this work. And they're hopeful that there's a way to do that that doesn't also belie all of our values about racial equity and justice and healing and redemption. And that's a, that's a fight worth having. All right. Well, that's a perfect point to end this out on. And uh, we're going to thank our guests for joining us. Uh, we have been hearing one last time from Hadar Aviram. She's a law professor with UC Hastings. Hadar, thanks so much. Thank you. Also heard from Nima Rahimi, a uh, recall supporter, also an executive board member of the California Democratic Party. Nima Rahimi, thanks to you as well. Thanks a lot for hosting this conversation, Keith. And finally, I want to say thank you to Christine Soto DeBerry. She's the executive director of the Prosecutors Alliance of California. Christine Soto DeBerry, thanks to you as well. Thank you, and to everybody on the conversation. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and in depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. Talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS in depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. 
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.